Hello, this is Rosemary Lally, the editor for the Council of Institutional Investors. Today, I'm talking to Steve Weiss, the CIO and managing partner of Short Hills Capital Partners. We're talking about a publication he recently authored that raises an interesting prospect. The paper, A Governance Solution to Prevent the Destruction of Shareholder Value in M&A Transactions, argues that shareholders should have an independent monitor working for them in cases of a change in corporate control or in key initiatives such as acquisitions. Welcome, Stephen. Can you please tell us a little about your background and why you came to the conclusion that such a monitor is needed in these situations? Sure. So... I'll give you an abbreviated CV on me. I was a tax attorney before I came to uh, the world of finance just over 30 years ago. And during that period of time, I've done everything from cover institutional equity accounts as a salesperson to co-heading global equity research at Solomon Brothers when Warren Buffett controlled the firm, serving on firm-wide <laughs> committees such as capital commitment committee, budgeting committees, from there, I went to SAC Capital, which is now point seventy-two, running the firm for Steve Cohen and also working as the CIO there. I went back to the sell side to another senior management position at Lehman Brothers, where I was one of the uh, key people running the equity division. I've also written two investment books and a novel. Uh, one of the books I wrote, The Billion Dollar Mistake, is actually the uh, forms the basis for the curriculum at a course at UNC's graduate school, Keenan Flagler, where I'm a visiting teaching fellow. I also uh, manage the personal capital of Dave Tepper, who runs Appaloosies, regarded as one of the greatest investors uh, of all time. So I would allocate his personal capital, nothing to do with oh. Appaloosa. And in doing that, I came across appraisal rights. So right now I run an appraisal rights fund, and that'll lead us into the topic of conversation. Appraisal rights is a niche strategy for those who are not familiar with it. Our process is that we review every single M&A transaction that's announced in the U.S. and uh, in the Cayman Islands. Other firms, such as Elliott, may do it in Germany. Uh, there are appraisal rights laws throughout the world in, in most markets. And essentially what they say is that if, if a company is acquired for less than fair value, shareholders have the right to petition the court of relative jurisdiction to determine what fair value is. And there are two hurdles to achieving a higher value. The first is that the process by which the company was sold has to have been flawed or non-existent. And then the merger price has to be significantly below fair value, which is typically calculated on a DCF discounted cash flow analysis. These are not class action lawsuits, so institutional shareholders generally aren't familiar with them. It's a very niche strategy. And the reason why a company would sell for less than it's worth is because, as you'll see in a couple of examples I'll provide, is that management, particularly in going private transactions, may receive retention agreements that do not have to be disclosed in the proxy and are rarely done so. And they will get their options set at a low amount. They will get much more stock and benefit from selling the company at a lower price. So we see that. We take advantage of it. The acquirer, on the other hand, says, you know what? I can buy this company at a significantly lower price than fair value, 
roughly on average, only 5% of the shares are going to file for appraisal, if that. And I will negotiate with those people for a price that is probably below fair value. So my blended price between the 95% that I've paid for it at a discount to what it's worth and the 5% that may come after me and pay them a premium to merge price still get a hell of a deal. So, so that happens fairly often. So the reason I'm doing this is that I've always had an interest in shareholder rights, which is part of the reason I got involved in appraisal rights, and have always tried to be on, on the right side of things. And, and I just found there are so many transactions that we look at, keeping in mind that we review every M&A transaction that's announced, where I see this type of behavior go on and on. It's not just in going private acquisitions, there's a significant body of research that talks about how CEOs will make strategic acquisitions in order to meet comp levels that will increase their compensation. Now, of course, shareholders don't get to vote on an acquisition, even if it changes the very face of the company, unless they're issuing a lot of stock. CEOs will also sell to other companies in a strategic transaction, as we saw with the Rubin Networks, which I'll talk about in a second, because they may get a bigger job or, again, get options that will exceed what their, their co current compensation. So it happens all the time. We will only go to a situation where it's very, very clear by reading the proxy that the process by which the company was sold was flawed. Sometimes there are these fictitious processes that read well in the proxy, but when you get to discovery and litigation, you see that they actually didn't exist. We will also only go after a situation where there's a 25% spread between merge price and fair value. So I see numerous situations where there's a 10% spread, 15%, maybe even 20%, or maybe 30%, but they've done a good job of portraying the fact that there is a process that didn't exist and we just don't want to get involved with that. So that's how I come to this. I just thought it was criminal, frankly. This continues to go on and the behavior is unchecked. And the way I look at it is that this is very damaging to the capital markets overall. So somebody has to stand up, others have stood up. That's why UNPRI exists, that's why your organization exists, Rosemary. So what right. I'm doing is no different than that. So, so that's how I come to it and that's, that's my background. I hope that answers the question. Absolutely. So under this scenario that you are proposing, a monitor for the shareholders would be hired. Often companies are continuously exploring strategic alternatives. So at what point would this monitor be hired and who would make the decision that a monitor is needed? Right. So the, the monitor would be retained at the point the company is actually embarking upon the path of pursuing a sale of the company. Uh, and let's just focus on a sale of the company right now rather than when the company makes an acquisition. Every proxy I've read, the opening line is periodically the company reviews their competitive situation, reviews the outlook for their business and determines if we should sell the company or what we should do. So the easy ones are if the company receives an expression of interest that another company or private equity firm wants to acquire them, then, of course, they should retain a monitor. If it becomes a serious conversation in the boardroom, whether or not it's their ultimate intention to do it, then that's when the monitor should be retained. 
in some cases, the company may decide not to sell, but no harm, no foul. The cost is pretty much de minimis to the company doing this. So the decision would be made by, ideally, the board of directors as a whole, but you don't really need to take a vote on it. It could be the lead director or the lead independent director. But as we've seen, a lot of independent directors are not necessarily independent. We have not, although it's been suggested to a few firms that we've spoken to that I should do this, we've not yet made that determination. It makes sense because of the expertise that I have. For ease of discussion, let's just identify HSCP as the firm that's going to be doing this. And that is your firm? Yes. Okay. And can you explain who would select the monitor that process and then who would pay the monitor? So the way this would work is that a consortium of institutional fund managers, and hopefully it would be a blend of all disciplines, passive, active, pensions, larger hedge funds that would be involved. And the HSCP, Short Hills Capital, would recruit and vet the potential monitors. The monitors would have to have no relationship, not be active bankers or securities lawyers that work for corporate entities currently. They would be academics or retired, semi-retired people that are knowledgeable about this. And those would be ex-bankers, ex-securities, attorneys, etc. And there are plenty of them out there that really know the process. So we would vet them and retain them, put them in our pool of sources. The monitor would be paid by the company, similar to how they pay any other outside advisor or consultant. That would spread the cost effectively across all shareholders. So the impact to any one shareholder wouldn't even be pennies to do it per share. Monitors would be required to sign an NDA and that they had not worked for any of the parties involved in the transaction for five years prior and would not be able to work for any of them three years after the process has culminated. So you said that you wanted to get a group of fund managers from all different sizes with different backgrounds. How would you go about choosing the fund managers? It would be from the original firms that sign on to this, as well as hopefully have organizations like CII be on the committee that does this. I'd want it to be no less than 10, but no more than 15 to 20, because then it becomes unwieldy. And that list would be vetted, would be shown to that committee. And the committee would have the right to say, you know what, we know this individual, or we don't agree with this individual's background or they may have been associated with a lead banker. So okay. the way it would work is that Short Hills Capital would be the ones that would know and be under strict NDA, similar to the way that a banker is retained. So how would HSCP or whatever independent firm that is doing this be paid? So they would be paid by participating in the fees that the monitor receives. And the reason for doing that is to keep the cost to a minimum. Ideally, you would also want the signatories to pay a small fee each year, which would be relatively meaningless to them to support the overhead of the organization, not as a money-making venture, but a fee to pay. I haven't looked into that fee. Maybe it's 5000 maybe it's 10000 don't know, but we're not talking about a lot of money. Definitely less than or around the price that a Bloomberg terminal costs, I guess. 
Now, what exactly would the monitor's responsibilities entail and what level of access would the monitor have? Often when poorly negotiated deals get challenged in court, we see that a lot of pre-cooking happens through private channels, such as emails between the target's management and the bidder's management. So what would the level of access look like and what would their responsibilities be? You're absolutely right. A lot happens behind the scenes, actually, sometimes away from the board overall, in dark rooms, and that only comes out in litigation. And unless you litigate, you don't know that's there. When I was working at large investment banks, bankers would often go out when they're supposed to be shopping the company, they'd call up their buddy at the PE firm or the, the strategic buyer and say, hey, I'm going to send you the book, but whatever you come in and offer, they'll match. They're the incumbent buyer. So don't waste your time. Right. When the monitor is making these findings and is overseeing the whole process, where would the shareholders find that information? The monitor would transcribe their observations and file it in a report as an appendix to the preliminary proxy. This would give much better transparency to the shareholders, allowing them to vote on a much more informed basis. And there's always an ability for dishonest boards and managements to hide information for conversations to take place online. But the monitor is attending every conference call. They're attending every board meeting. They're there strictly as an observer. They're not voting. They're not questioning. All they're doing is observing. If the mm-hmm. board comes to them and asks them, is this compliant with good governance procedures? The monitor will instruct them to consult their outside legal counsel. However, just the presence of a monitor will keep these situations, I believe, going in a manner that will protect shareholders. Right. This sounds like a great idea to have this person in place looking out for the shareholders. But how do you propose this practice being implemented? What needs to happen to get the ball rolling on this? So what the ask is, and this is a great question, is that investors include it in their proxy voting guidelines and it be treated as others do. For example, we are asking our investee companies to include this in their proxy voting guidelines. To the extent it is not included, we will weigh this when we vote for the re-election of directors and when we vote on approval of the merger. So there, they're put on notice. There's no reason for them not to include it. I understand that the initial reaction by the board is that, why do we want somebody looking over their shoulder? But if they've got nothing to hide, this will actually be a benefit for them because it'll put the good housekeeping seal of approval on the transaction. And by bringing a monitor in, there'll be less litigation, which is also positive for society, particularly nuisance litigation. And there'll be less fees that won't have to go towards supporting litigation. The second part of your question, how would this get implemented? So it would be that core group of original signatories to the initiative that would roll it out to the proxy voting guidelines. And I've also spoken to DNO insurer, directors and officers, about the Mm -hmm. concept of agreeing to employ a monitor and what that would do to their insurance premiums. I envision Hmm. it being something similar to uh, taking a driving course before you get your license. What did the person say? their position was, sounds like a great idea. Uh, It makes sense. So what do you say to those who might argue that it's the directors who should be actively looking out for the owner's interests and the creation of a monitor could shift that responsibility to, to someone with technically no fiduciary duty to the company? 
in an ideal world, you wouldn't need this because the board would truly be looking out for the shareholders' interest. And they may be thinking they're doing that. However, the reality of the situation is that when you hire somebody for a period of time, you tend to place a level of trust in them. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, it's not about the board's relationship with management. It's not about the board's longstanding relationship with bankers. Keep in mind, most bankers that a board retains, the board has known these bankers for a long time. That's how bankers build relationships. They come in, they update the board on what's going on in the industry, etc. So to then challenge the management or the bankers or the attorneys is kind of difficult to do. Mm-hmm. So they tend to place a higher value in that relationship, maybe not deliberately, but that's the impact than they do with shareholders. Keep in mind, the monitor does not have any authority. They don't have any control whatsoever. They're purely there to observe and inform shareholders. Right. That kind of leads into another question I have. By having the company pay the monitor, is there a danger that over time companies will only agree to hire monitors who are known to fall in line and support transactions that are proposed by management? Not under how I've designed this to operate. The monitor will be assigned to the company, not the company selecting from the pool a monitor. So that's to limit bias selection. So if the if the company signed on has agreed with the initiative and now they're saying, no, we don't want that monitor, that monitor's had negative things to say about two of the 10 transactions they worked on. We want somebody that's been 100% compliant. Then you know something's wrong. That would be an independent process. They would have to take the monitor who is assigned to them. Correct. What do you say to critics who might contend that instead of appointing an independent monitor for special situations, the focus should be on placing investor representatives directly on boards to provide investors with a voice in all of the corporation's affairs, not just M&A? You know, we have proxy access to Mm -hmm. promote that kind of a process, but very few investors are currently using it. I'd say that conceptually, that's a good idea to always have a true shareholder representative on the board. However, when it comes to M&A, investors have different agendas. So, for example, we've been involved in situations where an activist has come on. The activist has underperformed for the last couple of years. They needed a win, and they needed a win in a big way. So they were thinking very short term. They were willing to take an agreed-to transaction at a premium to the market price, but no way reflected fair value. And that doesn't necessarily have to be an activist investor. It could be a a long-only investor. So it's difficult to find a shareholder on a board that's going to be thinking for all investment disciplines, for all investors. At the end of the day, they'd have to weigh what fiduciary obligation do I have that's greater to my investors or Mm -hmm. to other investors and to the board. It's just not a great situation. The idea of this is to remove all potential conflict and bias from the monitor's report. And that may not do it. And, And additionally, if the shareholder has been on the board for a while, they may be prejudiced by their relationships with the other board members as well or be unwilling to admit to not being an effective board member. 
And then there's the issue of passive investing. Passive investors have done great things for the individual investor, making investing in the markets low cost, and also for some institutions that use that strategy. I have both active and passive investing in my portfolio. However, there's a lack of engagement there, and this was recognized by John Bogle in an article that he authored shortly before he passed away. What he talked about was increased engagement on behalf of passive investors. Now, some have made moves to do that, BlackRock, but they still only have, I believe, 36 to 40 people in their engagement. But they are, to their credit, making an effort there. However, as long as it's in the index, that's great. But once it comes out of the index, they're not involved. It's not their mandate. So I think there's a big need, and I think they would recognize the need, and we are talking to a few of them, to do this. It would be very helpful for them to be on board with this and have tremendous utility for what they do, because I know that Larry Fink, as I said, has been very vocal on increasing engagement and short-termism and everything else, and this would help cure it. Yeah, that's great. No, if you got the Black Rocks of the world behind you, I think that you could definitely get some traction with this idea. <laughs> so yes. thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is this is a fascinating concept, and I know our members will be really interested to hear about it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.